A thing that looks like a police box standing in a junkyard. It can move anywhere. Haven, concentrate on sin. Give priority to the detectors and the navigation systems. There is a corridor. And the corridor is time. It surrounds all things. On display, I eventually had to go down to the cellar. That's the display department. With a torch. The lights are probably gone. So had the stairs. You are just number six. I am not a number. I am a person. Welcome to British Invaders, episode 424. This is the podcast all about British science fiction television, and this time we are continuing our discussion about Space Patrol. This is Brian from Canada. And this is Eamon from England. Hello. Yes, Space Patrol is a Roberta Lee science fiction puppet show from 1963. 39 episodes in all, 25 minutes or so each, featuring the adventures of the spaceship Galosphere 347 from the United Galactic Organization in its attempts to keep the peace in our solar system. And we have some familiar 1960s science fiction themes and a pretty optimistic take on things and some of the feel even of earlier science fiction shows, I think, in a children's show that's marionette-based. So it has a feel similar to some of the Jerry Anderson Super Marionation shows, but this was done by Roberta Lee rather than Jerry Anderson after the partnership there had split apart. And I will note that it should not be confused with the 1955 live-action Space Patrol, the American show. And because of that, this series that we're talking about, Space Patrol, was sometimes called Planet Patrol in the U.S. Aha, uh -huh, yes. Important to note the difference. <laughs> yes, indeed. So for the most part, the series and the characters are confined to our solar system, moving around throughout the solar system. And as we mentioned last time, there is some understanding of some of the difficulties of space travel, so that the huge distances between the planets of our solar system and the time required to reach them, even if you've got an 800,000 mile per hour meson drive in your galosphere, it's going to take a while. So the crew of Galosphere 347 go into suspended animation, the deep freeze, as they call it, while robots sort of run the ship. And then we've also got some other features of science. We, so we have them wearing spacesuits and what they refer to as oxygen helmets to walk on the surface of other planets. I noted that there wasn't really much sort of discussion of different gravity on different planets. There's also gravity on the spaceship, Brian. Yes, there does appear to be. It does have a rotating design. It spins and has a circular segment. So it's possible you could argue that they have some centrifugal gravity because of that. But it's never made clear. And there's no sense in any of the spaces that it's a curved space. But we do have sort of some hard science fiction features to this, where a lot of the stories are based around science fiction ideas and couldn't be told without them. And and we also have some sort of 1950s and early 60s kind of pulp science fiction feel that sort of reminds me, even going back to some of the old American serials, like the Flash Gordon serials and those sorts of things. It has a little bit of that sense to it. And we get a variety of alien races and the crew encounters things 
about invisibility and miniaturization, telepathy and teleportation. There is a robot rebellion, rogue supercomputer type things, and devices that appear to slow down time. So there are a lot of different things with different science fiction ideas in here, and that's kind of fun. Yes, these fun science fiction shows from the 60s that, you know, we've talked about, Brian, the, 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 the mind control, the invisibility, playing with time, playing with size. They come up quite, quite often in some of the shows we talk about. I should also note that there's a fair amount of optimism, hopeful or even at times magical thinking about solutions to world and galactic space problems in the show. So Captain Dart and his crew are often assigned to go and fetch an egg or some pebbles or some leaves from another planet. Objects that are going to sort of fix a problem cure a disease or fix certain problems maybe it doesn't come up quite as often as i i perhaps thought it was certainly just something that i noted as a recurring device in the episodes or some of the episodes there are a number of very convenient solutions where you know a coincidence gets them out of something that Professor Haggerty was working on a device and that device just happens to be the right thing to get them out of what whatever predicament they happen to be in. Indeed. And I, I did wonder in our notes whether this also reflected some of the optimism of both space exploration and science fiction of this period. The belief that life could exist on planets elsewhere in a solar system and the belief that we often find, I guess, in exploration, even here on Earth, that we may find dramatic cures or uh, something out there that could help with an existing problem. And, you know, regular listeners will know I refer to this quite a lot since I read a book about <laughs> space exploration and particularly about space photography. The idea that until the Mariner probe sent us back our first pictures of the surface of Mars in 1964, that we really thought that the other planets in the solar system could still possibly support life. Yes, and that was sort of the, the War of the Worlds idea that, you know, you could have trees and other plants and life forms and the like on Mars that could come to Earth. Now, it isn't quite clear in this show if we as humans have colonized Mars and Venus or if they have their, their own life forms, their own people who have evolved there. Because we have Venusians like Slim and Marla who have sort of pointed ears and a slightly different look than humans, but look pretty human. And they seem to be very logical and intelligent and are very good at organizing things and so on where the martians like our regular character husky are also quite human looking but are very large and physically strong and eat a lot so it isn't clear if there were humans that colonized those planets and then their forms and abilities sort of gradually changed over time through one way or another or if they were actually 
from there, where they made it more clear that the Neptunians and the odd creatures from Jupiter were aliens that are from there. And we see that in, in some other bits of science fiction from the period, don't we? The idea that living on another solar system planet the gravity and the environment would affect them or there'd be some form of evolution or some form of genetic modification to allow them to to live there so that does i've seen that come up in science fiction quite a lot as well yes so it certainly makes sense that that could be the idea they have there and you know there were books that talked about that kind of thing by then i believe but it wasn't something that they ever went into or i think would want to get into in a, a children's show like this i also note that the series covers some interesting stuff particularly about the resource of water in the solar system and the idea of getting water to Mars in particular, and a quite interesting idea about moving icebergs through space as a way of delivering water to Mars. And I've certainly, again, I've come across that in science fiction elsewhere. I know there's a, an Isaac Asimov short story, or in fact, a few short stories about this idea, and I think it might be something that comes up in the TV series and the books that they're based on The Expanse, I think, Brian. I'm not uh, an expert on that show, so I'm not entirely sure. Yes, there are some interesting things there, and that is part of what's nice about this series, is that you have some of those kinds of things there. So let's move on to talk about some spin-offs, which we like to do if there are spin-offs from the shows we cover. And of course, a 1960s puppet show for kids, there was bound to be some. So we'll start with some print-related or printed items. Yes, there were comics strips, of course, in TV comic, and also in some annuals they would show up sometimes. And their comic book appearances were also collected into a couple of hardback volumes. Haven't seen any of those. They're not in my collection, I'm afraid, Brian, but I'd be interested to look at them. Of course, there were other bits and pieces, sticker books, sweets, some toys, although interestingly, my researches suggest that the toys may have been most popular in other countries. I see them from Holland. Of course, we see a lot of space-based TV show toys from Japan. And I think the, the Space Patrol toys I've seen have mostly been Japanese. Interesting. And there were those Standard 8 and Super 8 home movie reels, which were cut-down versions of some of the episodes into 16 minutes released in the sort of very early 1970s if you had a home movie projector you may have been able to see space patrol i'm not sure if you'd been able to hear space patrol because a lot of those home systems didn't have sound at the time i seem to remember ryan yes that's right and that may well have been the case with those as we said last episode i do not have any of those <laughs> we did have some uh, Super 8 home movie reels, but certainly the ones we had were all silent, but not Space Patrol. So I think we're at the point now where we should get into some of our opinions and what we thought about Space Patrol. So, Eamon, what did you like about Space Patrol? There's a lot to like about Space Patrol. I'm going to start with 1962 which is when it was being produced. We know it started uh, airing in 63, but we'll start in 1962 with the ambition of Roberta Lee and Arthur Provis in doing this space-based puppet show and really throwing some interesting stuff and some very interesting ideas together into this show about space exploration and a sort of galactic space or solar system space police force or peace force. 
So I like the ambition of the show, Brian. Yes, I would agree with that. I really do like how ambitious this was. I also like the look of it, which is very dated, that looks like something from its time and in some ways even from earlier. But the look of the city that they have with its, with its tubes running around everywhere and the space sequences and the, the robots, it's a really fun look for a spacefaring future. Absolutely. And of course, the puppet creation creators the model creators those remarkable puppeteers up on the gantry in the converted church in Harlesden operating these back-breakingly heavy puppets the artistry involved in making a series like this and the creativity is quite amazing yes I did like the puppets in this it's an odd comparison trying to compare it to the Jerry Anderson puppets from the Supermarionation shows, but these ones have more realistic proportions than the Anderson ones before Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons did. The ones in Captain Scarlet and onwards had more realistic proportions than the Space Patrol ones. This was somewhere in between, and I liked that look. And, you know, though they did more walking and it looked looked awkward when they did it. But I was okay with that. I thought the look of the, the puppets and how the puppet characters worked in this, I thought was pretty good. Yes, we haven't really mentioned that much, that the puppets are more human proportion compared to a show that we're going to probably mention again in a few moments, Fireball XL5, which is sort of at a similar period of time where they are still Jerry Anderson is still going for the big head puppets to allow for the solenoid lip syncing devices to be fitted inside them I'd say that the first production block of 26 episodes the puppets are slightly more crude than the second 13 block and once you see that Wonderama production credit appear on screen, I think you can see improvements in puppets and costume designs. Yes, and I think the model work and when they have explosions and things, I think that improved in that second block as well. So there were some interesting things there. I think on this show, they gave some more interesting ideas and more interesting sort of story content and, you know, a little more to grab a hold of and think about than Fireball XL5 did. XL5 had sort of punchier action and faster pacing, but I think there was some more interesting stuff going on in this one. Yes, this one has the sort of optimistic view of science fiction that we referred to a few times, this idea that by 2100 we will have colonised the solar system, we will be protecting it from external threats and dealing with various sort of environmental issues uh, in a sort of in a sort of cooperative and generally peaceful fashion. Fireball XL5 has more, probably more explosions, more sort of dramatic incidents. I mean, it is does have a certain amount of optimism in Space Patrol compared with Firewall XL5. This idea that by 2100 we will have uh, reached out into the solar system, we'll be living on all the planets or exploring all the planets and sharing resources and generally acting in a peaceful way. So that's sort of interesting compared to the sort of 
a slightly more whiz bang explosions stories of Firebird XL5. Yeah, there's a more ambitious space opera vision of the future to Space Patrol than there is in, in XL5, which is a little bit more exploratory rather than being about, you know, what's going on and almost dipping into future politics of the solar system around us and beyond. One advantage they had in Fireball XL5 was they had Derek Meddings working on the model work. And what he was able to do and his team was able to do, even at that point in Fireball XL5, was pretty impressive in terms of the explosions and the vehicles and so on. I know, I think even by then, Derek Meddings and that group were doing off-speed filming. So they would film in high speed so that when you played it back, it would slow it down. And that gave things a sense of weight. And it made explosions and models of vehicles look like they were big and heavy in a pretty convincing way. I believe they were not doing that on Space Patrol, and it meant the sense of motion was a little jerkier and sometimes gave the scale away a little bit. And we were talking off air about how any show from this period would have been improved by the presence of Derek Meddins. He was such a, a remarkable talent. <laughs> well, maybe so. Yeah. Yeah, and for some of it in this, I think certainly with the puppets, what they... The way they gave things more weight was to give them more weight, to use very heavy puppets. And I think they may have been doing something similar with some of the models. Oh, that, that would make sense. Yes. Can I just mention the wonderful and slightly eerie uh, music for Space Patrol? Composed by Roberta Lee with F.C. Judd and, you know, performed on some early electronic devices. And I just think that's marvellous. The whole sort of... The way this show was put together in a converted church using early bits of electronica to make the music is just remarkable. Yes, the last time we talked about Roberta Lee was for an earlier show, Torchy the Battery Boy, which she was doing in with Jerry Anderson when they still had that partnership going on. And she was involved in the music for that as well. And in that case, they were doing it as a musical with some songs written that the actors were singing and i think it was sort of a good call that by this time they had moved beyond that and were using the music just as incidental music and i think what they did here worked well fascinating stuff what about things that didn't work quite so well for you brian okay well there are obviously limitations with the puppets just from that time and i think they relied on the puppets walking and things like this a little more than they should have although the the robot walking sort of looked like it was breakdancing 1980s style <laughs> which i find very amusing but was not what they were intending so the biggest thing that jumps out at me is the limitations of some of their model work and puppetry it shows at this point they weren't very good at hiding that especially in the first two-thirds of the series in that first block yes i think we have to accept the limitations of the early 60s and what they were doing with the puppets you are going to see wires from time to time and as you say once puppets start to walk around sets it can be very difficult indeed 
Um, I would mention that, you know, something we've mentioned as a positive, the fact that this show deals or tries to do some hard science stuff and also tries to do some almost like space diplomacy and space politics, as you said, Brian, that can lead to some slightly dull episodes where you don't get the whiz-bang and the explosions of Fireball X or 5. And some of the episodes dragged for me because of that. Yeah, I didn't find that they dragged, but I did find that when they were doing those kinds of things, I think maybe they didn't have enough time in 25, 26 minutes to resolve them well. So they end up with these very convenient solutions where we're available just in the right place or the right time. So yeah, I would say that that was sort of a limitation was that they were using these sort of awkward uh, coincidences to resolve things sometimes. Yeah. There is um, quite a bit of extra information and extra features on the DVD set that I have, which I found very interesting and very useful, particularly the interviews, which as listeners can tell, I've taken quite a bit from. Sadly, not on the Blu-ray, unfortunately. No, watching on Blu-ray, I'm definitely missing those. I would also point out that this is uh, dated in some respects, as you would expect, but there is some sexism in it. There are some stereotypes and things with the Irish characters and so on. There are some things that are not that great in that area of things. And for its era, maybe it's not too bad, but it's still, looking at it now, it's still something that we have to notice, I think. Okay. It is a long series, 19 plus hours or something like that in all, I guess, thereabouts. I confess I've not managed to watch the entirety of it myself, although I have been watching the interviews with a lot of interest. Yes, it is a lot of content, which is an accomplishment uh, that they were able to do that much and do this type of thing at the time. But yeah, there is a lot there. I would also point out this is a children's series from before Doctor Who. And this is something I sort of mark for British children's shows and family shows as a big point of division. You have the things before Doctor Who and the things once Doctor Who had started. And typically the things from before Doctor Who tend to talk down to children quite a bit and tend to be kind of deliberately silly and you know, a way that's less than ideal for, for children and tend to be just not as interesting and involved as they could be. And as we would see with Doctor Who and so many other things, we would see that you could do much better in things for children. Yes. And this show has some of that. I think compared to some of the other early 60s and even 1950s children's series we've looked at. It's not too bad. It's better than a lot of them, but it does have some of that. And it does have some of those issues of being sort of deliberately, you know, very children's TV childlike 
So better than some, this is a positive and a negative. Better than a lot of things from the era, but it's still there. Okay, fascinating. Anything else you want to add before we get to our recommendations, Brian? I don't think so. And whose turn is it to start? I can start. I will say that this is a fun one. It's it's interesting. I enjoyed it, but I'm not going to recommend it. And unless you're really interested in the puppet shows and the show from this era or you're able to look at just one or two episodes i don't think it's something that i would tell people to rush out and get there are more interesting puppet shows later in the 60s okay i mean i think i would say similar it's you know, it's not going to displace my love for the Jerry Anderson shows, but the history of Space Patrol, its production, Roberta Lee and Arthur Provis beavering away in a converted church and making up electronic music as well, and all those bits and pieces that I've found out about the production are fascinating to me. And I think this is a show almost more interesting for the history than the actual episodes. So what I would suggest you do is not get the whole series, but actually spend pound fifty on Amazon and watch a single episode, but listen to our show to get the background details about it. That's what I'm going to say. I think it's a long, slightly tricky watch, but some of the details around the production are just uh, incredible. In terms of ranking some of these things, I will say that I would prefer to watch Space Patrol over Fireball XL5 and certainly over Torchy the Battery Boy. However, when you get to later things like Stingray, and certainly when you get to Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons, I would much prefer looking at those, and I would recommend those well above Space Patrol. Interesting stuff. So I would say it doesn't displace any of the Jerry Anderson shows for me. I would still put Fireball XL5 above Space Patrol myself, partly because I like a bit of whiz-bang and explosions from Derek Meadows and so on. So yeah, at the moment, it's not knocking uh, any of them out of my top five, I'm afraid. Okay, fair enough. So, in summary, Space Patrol introduced us to the crew of Galosphere 347 and their adventures around the solar system and their interactions with the settlements and the people from Mars and Venus and Neptune and so on, and gave us lots of science fiction ideas and things about time slowing down and robot revolutions and supercomputers taking over and a whole variety of things in this early 60s marionette puppet format. Great stuff. And please come back next time. We are moving on. We're going very up to date with a 2022 show a very recent adaptation of John Wyndham's classic, The Midwich Cuckoos from Sky TV. And uh, looking forward to talking about it, Brian. Yes, absolutely. That should be a good one to talk about for sure. Until then, you can find us at BritishInvaders.com with all of our previous episodes there right from the beginning. And if you search for British Invaders on Facebook, you can find us there. You can find us on Twitter as at Brit Invaders Pod. So please 
join us on the socials and join in on the conversations. Yes, give us a follow and come along to the Voice of Geeks Network. British Invaders is part of the Voice of Geeks at vognetwork.com. You'll find our shows, you'll find other podcasts, you'll find Twitch streaming, gaming content, lots of stuff to investigate at the Voice of Geeks. Absolutely. So thank you for listening. And this is Brian from Canada signing off. Yes, thank you very much. Until next time, it's Eamon and the Gallosphere 347 signing off.